Good evening, everyone. Good to see you here for our. Uh, this will be probably the final of the of these particular seminars. Hopefully, next week we'll be starting our John studies. So, watch out for all the information on that. Uh, the books should be arriving in the next week or two. But we've already got chapter one that we can print off, so you can all get going on it. And it will be, I'm sure, a really worthwhile uh, study. Um, so in the, in the last few weeks, uh, we've looked at um, an overview of biblical manhood and womanhood, some back to basics in Genesis 1 to 3. And then we looked at uh, theology of parenting. Um, and this evening, we're going to be talking about sex and dating. Dating. So I had lots of questions about uh, that pastorally over the last 10 years and, and recently with some uh, interesting conversations. So it's, it's something where we need a lot of... Um, clarity of, of, of thinking and biblical wisdom too because um, it's something that's not been written well on I don't think uh, in, in evangelical circles so uh, we're going to be thinking about sex and dating so let me pray and then we'll begin Heavenly Father as your word says from the book of Proverbs he who finds a wife uh, finds a good thing and we can see from your word the, the greatness and the glory uh, and the purposes of the sexes and uh, marriage and sex. Um, and in all these things, we would wish to honor you uh, in a world that has turned away uh, from these things and turned away even from the sacredness of it all. Um, I pray that you'd help to create paradigms of thinking in our minds that accords with your word this evening, out of which uh, we can begin to develop even, uh, even a theology of, of sex and, and even a theology of dating and how that will practically work out in the lives of people in this church. So help us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing that you need to consider um, when thinking about sex and dating is this am I a Christian am I a Christian and do I live for God's glory on my own this is the first thing that you need to ask yourself have I entered the narrow gate but also am I walking on the hard way it's a narrow gate but it is a a hard way and the way is hard because you will face opposition this is this this meaning for the hardness of the hard way is you're going to fa- face a pressure, opposition in the way that you walk. And it's going to be an opposition and a pressure from the outside because the culture is going to be opposed to this way. They live on Easy Street, remember? And they are going to mock and criticize and even demonize, demonize the hard way. So, so the way will be hard because of this pressure that will come at you from the outside. Um, The way is also going to be hard because your own flesh and wrong thinking will push against the boundaries of the hard way. So the decision is, straight up, will I live for God's glory or for my glory? Will I follow his word or will I follow the world? That is the first thing you've got to make up your mind on. Otherwise, you can go straight to answer the practical question on this, that, and the other. And you actually have not made a decision on the first and the main thing. So that said, we need to move to our topic. Uh, and you do have some handouts here, sex and dating. Well, first, let's talk about sex. Okay? What is sex and what is sex for? Well, 
what is the ultimate purpose for sex? And that is to say, it's the glory of God. Now, that's the Sunday school answer. The glory of God is ultimate. Isaiah says, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created, and here's the purpose, for my glory, whom I formed and made. We're talking about sex in terms of gender. Sex, the two sexes, are created for the glory of God. And then we have Genesis 1, of course. I've read this several times to you over the last... A few weeks and even on Saturday so God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them and then of course God blessed them and says be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the heavens over every living thing that moves on the earth so we know from the very first pages of scripture that God made binary sexes in terms of gender, what we might think of as gender, but also sex in terms of sexual union between those sexes, okay, to be fruitful and multiply. Uh, and then we see in Genesis 2, verse 7, a creation of a man from the dust, and, and then a little bit later, a woman from the rib of the man. And so these are then physical, bodily creations. They are... Physically and teleologically, that is, end purpose, purposefully designed to then come together, even as they're built and designed to come together in the one flesh union of marriage in Genesis 2.24. So from the beginning, we can see one race, binary sexes, bodily sexes, male and female, and sexual bodies, male and female, that form a one flesh union in marriage, meaning marriage meaning nothing less than sexual union out of which they will have children. Now, the one flesh union means more than this, of course, in that it points to covenant between the man and the wife, and also covenant between God and his people, ultimately Christ and the church, which is the parallel that Paul makes in Ephesians 5 when he says marriage in Genesis 2.24 is a picture of Christ and the church. All of this, then, is to image forth God upon the earth. So the ultimate reason for the sexes and for sexual union is God's glory. Okay? First thing you've got to get rooted in this first paradigm to have. Now, we can unpack that a little further. And so I'm going to go back to something that I'd said on Saturday, um, if you were at the conference in my, in my talk. Something that we don't think about too much. Both of the sexes are designed to point to God. God the Father and God the Son. So men are not the source of masculinity, but are God's chosen sex to carry the masculine role of husband and father. That reflects Christ as the husband, the bridegroom of the church, and God as father, father in heaven, father of the Son. Then you say, well, what of what of women? Are, are they less important? I mean, the men are called to carry that masculine role to point to father and son. What about women? Well, no, they're not less important. Equally important already. Uh, we know that they are because Genesis 1.27 says that both are created equal in the image of God. They too, though, are called to point to God through their sex, to point to God as father and Christ as husband. How? By the way they help to affirm their own father's role and the way they help to affirm their husband's role even as he becomes a father also 
So a man's maleness and a woman's femaleness are not about himself or herself. Both are saying, look, this is what God the Father and this is what God the Son looks like. And they do it in slightly different ways. But they're not pointing to themselves in their sexuality. What if they're not married or never married? Or is it the same for a man, a single man as as well as a single woman? Yes, unmarried men, unmarried women can show single-minded allegiance to the bridegroom, Christ, in a corporately feminine role uh, of the church as the bride. Uh, Unmarried men and women can all affirm fathers and husbands where appropriate, and that is then pointing to God the Father and Christ the bridegroom. All men can be spiritual fathers in the church, pointing to the fatherhood of God. And all women can be spiritual mothers, motherhood then called to train younger women to be submissive to their own husbands, thus showing Christ to be the husband worthy to be followed. In the way that the church, corporate, submits to their elders, the whole church is pointing to the son who is the chief shepherd and bridegroom of the church, and whom the elders are called to imitate as under-shepherds. And as the congregation, men and women, as they submit to their elders, they point to the Father in heaven, even as godly fatherhood in the home is one of the qualifications of an elder in First Timothy 3. I tried to say that all fairly slowly, but it's thick, and yet it all points to God, Father and God's Son, Binary sexes both designed to point to God and not ultimately to us. So that's a paradigm that we need to have in our, our mind. That men both, and women, both sexes, point to God the Father and God the Son. And what is sex for? It is for the glory of God. So is there more to say about sexual union? Well, yes, the, the, the strap line, the strap line is that it is reserved for marriage between one man and one woman alone. This is the only place for sex. It's within the covenant of marriage. Outside of that covenant, all sexual activity is sinful. That is all sexual speaking, touching, or thinking. Mm. You might say thinking. Well, yes, Jesus says that he who looks at a woman with lust in his heart is guilty of committing adultery. Now, hear me correctly. Desire for marriage is not sinful. It is good. Attraction to the opposite sex is not sinful. It is good. So, so this is good for you know, parents to even understand as their children are getting older, is there is a natural um, draw of the sexes towards each other that is natural and good as they grow and become aware, uh, but it is not necessarily sinful. Lustful thinking is sinful. It is not good. And that is part of pagan sexuality. In, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, they both, both Testaments, both books, they root their sexual ethics in Genesis 1 and 2. So when Moses speaks about homosexuality in Leviticus 18 uh, 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 and then 
transsexualism, that is cross-dressing, in Deuteronomy 22, in verse 5, he sets these prohibitions of homosexuality, against homosexuality and De- in Deuteronomy against transsexualism, he sets the prohibitions within a list of other pagan practices. So if you read the text, you see that they're set in the midst of pagan practices which all go against the sexual ethic laid out of creation. That is why they are sinful. They're part of pagan sexuality that go against creation order. So Leviticus 18 indicates that homosexuality is set within this pagan ethic, one that includes a total rejection of God's divine design, like killing one's children as opposed to caring for them, having sex with a member of the same sex as opposed to one's spouse, there's a homosexuality, and pursuing sex with an animal as opposed to ruling over the beasts. That's bestiality. So you see how they're all opposed to Genesis 1 and 2. It is part of pagan worldview. Homosexuality then part of paganism. Uh, it, paganism, the pagan mind, uh, doesn't honour distinctions between the sexes, nor roles between the sexes, in any way that glorifies God's design for sex and sexuality. It actually encourages people to just indulge in their sexual appetites, whatever they may be. Uh, and so Paul, the apostle, says uh, in uh, Romans... So you see in the Old Testament, now you see the same affirmation in the New Testament. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for women exchange natural relations. He's, he's talking about Genesis 1 and 2. Natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. He's pointing back to Genesis 1 and 2. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another and so on. That's Romans 1, 22 through 27, that, that sort of passage. When you start, so that's homosexuality, okay? Old Testament and New Testament rooted back to Genesis 1 and 2. The same for um, transgenderism. Deuteronomy 22, verse 5 says it's an abomination for a woman to wear a man's garment and for a man to wear a woman's cloak. Now, this is speaking to a much bigger matter than fashion in the ancient North, uh, Near East. It, it connects morality to biology. In other words, if you're a man, you're called to dress like a man. If you're a woman, you're called by God to dress like a woman. Creation biology is destiny. Your body is not lying to you. Your anatomy is telling you who you are and who God made you to be. So that's then Old Testament rooting back to Genesis 1 and 2. And then 1 Corinthians 11 in the New Testament reinforces Deuteronomy 22, saying women and men should grow their hair at different lengths according to the apostle. Long hair, he teaches, is a disgrace for men, but the glory of a woman. So culturally appropriate ways to display the distinction. The man and woman united in a marriage must not look the same or blur the roles in marriage. Must not look the same. They must dress differently to, um, to affirm the differences in the, in the divine design, and they must not blur the roles, the masculine and feminine roles in marriage. And so the man was not created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Again, he speaks of that in 1 Corinthians 11. There's a difference there, even arcing back to Genesis 1 and 2. So both the Old Testament and New Testament sexual code refers to Genesis 1 and 2, paradigm to have in your mind. And for God's design for all of that, 
to take place within marriage alone. So you've got to have these theological paradigms for thinking about things before you start thinking about things like dating and getting married. Okay, so carrying on with these paradigms then, what about purposes for sexual union? The ultimate purpose is the glory of God. But there, there are ultimate purposes, and there can be subordinate to those ultimate purposes, purposes, if you, lo- if you like. So I'm going to give you four purposes, subordinate to the ultimate purpose of the glory of God. Purposes for sex. One is consummation. Two is procreation. Three is love. And four is covenant. Consummation, procreation, love, and covenant. Consummation. The first marriage in Genesis 2 uh, is initiated by uh, a public declaration, but it is ratified in the one flesh union of sex, and that is the way that things go in the culture even today. Okay? Public declaration of the marriage, ratified then, consummated in the one flesh union of sex between the husband and the wife on the wedding night. Each act after that is then an ongoing affirmation. Each act of consummation is an ongoing affirmation of the unique union of the husband and wife, even pointing to the glory of God in the union of Christ and the church. And that is why a husband and wife are encouraged to have sexual union regularly and often. 1 Corinthians 7, even speaking of uh, your body given even as a duty uh, to your spouse. Okay? So it is good for you to have sex and to have it often, even in the way that it is pointing in its consummation to this covenant relationship. It is good for that marriage. It affirms covenant. So consummation is, is the first thing. Procreation, second purpose of sex. Be fruitful and multiply. See, we go back to Genesis again. Be fruitful and multiply is about the creative purposes for sex. Spreading image bearers. Having children. And it's about the ruling mandate to have dominion by propagation of image bearers. Thus it tends to the glory of God in covering the earth with image bearers. Hence, all marriage, all marriages must be open to children. I've had this question recently. Should all marriages? Yes, all marriages must be open to children. Not every act of sex within the marriage, but all marriages must be open to children. Otherwise, you act immorally and thwart one of God's sacred and key ordinances in the purposes and privilege of marriage from creation. Keep going back to creation. That said, although all marriages must be open to children, not every act of sex must lead to babies, meaning that contraception is permissible. Remember, procreation is not the ultimate end of glorifying God. It is subordinate, and it it sits in union with these other purposes, one of which I've already laid out, two of which are to come freedom and wisdom allows for individual marriages then to decide perhaps on what number of children they might (laughs) like to have whilst remembering 
that children are a blessing from the Lord and the Lord opens the womb and so on, <coughs> that means then that any contraception must be truly contraceptive in effect and not abortive fashion. You know what I mean by that, I'm assuming. So that's the second purpose uh, for sex and sexual union is procreation and how that fits then uh, with every marriage being, must be open to children. It is part of the key purposes of, uh, of marriage is having children, it's creation ordinance, but not every act of sex within marriage must lead to babies, meaning that contraception is permissible and the number of children uh, a husband and wife have uh, would be according to their own wisdom, perhaps their own abilities and so on and so forth, whilst remembering that children are a blessing from the Lord, not a burden from the Lord. They are a blessing from the Lord. <clears throat> it's to have many children if you want. Great. The third purpose of marriage is as an expression of love. Love between husband and wife isn't simply a state of mind, it's expressed through the conjugal act. The Song of Solomon expresses this well three times in chapter 2, 3 and chapter 8 as it relates, it relates love as a way of speaking of the act of sexual union. It actually kind of replaces almost the word with the act or vice versa. <clears throat> now Christ obviously does not have sex with his bride, the church, but a husband and wife having sex is a living metaphor of the loving union of Christ and the church. So that's why in Ephesians 5, Paul quotes Genesis 2, 24, and so it speaks about the one flesh union, which remember is nothing less than sexual union, and then says this mystery is profound. I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. And then the fourth purpose of sex is pleasure. Pleasure. Now, pleasure as the object of sex, apart from the other three purposes, okay, is carnal. It's the way the world thinks. Just have sex for pleasure, right? <clears throat> but pleasure, in connection to the other three purposes, is good. In the context of the other three purposes, it's very natural. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, Proverbs 5. Isaiah 62, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so God will rejoice over you. When Adam saw his wife that God had made for him, he bursts into poetry. Yeah, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She was good looking. This is, yeah, this before the fall. He was probably all right as well. Aesthetically pleasing, and there's this joy in the aesthetics, but also then in this marriage that's going to happen between the two of them, and the one flesh union that's going to happen in the marriage, which then leads to even this creative process of having children. Isn't it amazing how God, in a very faint way, gives man even the um, ability, obviously God ordained, ability to create, even as he has created so there's this beautiful picture of creation in breathing life into his first son, Adam, and then forming this woman beautifully from the rib of the man and bringing her to him. And then he gives in the capacity of the male and female as image bearers that same kind of creative purpose as they create image bearers 
It's a very uh, amazing thing that should be obviously pleasurable and the act itself is, oh, thanks, is pleasurable. Thanks. So every marriage then must contain all those four purposes for sex. So think of your marriage, think of marriage, think of those four purposes and that every marriage must contain all four purposes for sex. In addition then to these subordinate four purposes of sex for the ultimate purpose of the glory of God, we need to ask then what kind of acts of sex might befit God's glory. So just because you are married and know the purposes of sex, it doesn't guarantee you're actually using sex for the glory of God within that marriage. Now in their book, uh, Ethics for a Brave New World, Ethics for a Brave New World, John and Paul Feinberg give seven questions that you can ask yourselves here. And I'm just going to give you the seven questions. I think they're out, maybe in your outline as well. So I don't want to go into, we've got lots of children here. I don't want to go into to, to, to lots of detail, but you can apply these questions to the actual acts itself. Am I fully persuaded it is right, number one? Number two, can I do this, can we do this, as unto the Lord? Number three, can I do this without it being a stumbling block to my brother, sister, spouse? <clears throat> Number four, does it bring peace in the relationship, peace in the mind of both of us during, afterwards? Uh, number five, does it edify? Is it edifying to us in, in, in what we're doing here? Six, is it profitable, linked to maybe edifying? Seven, will this enslave me, enslave us? This is an enslaving act that we're doing here. And then, I suppose, finally, I, I think that's actually maybe eight. Does it bring glory to God? Does it bring glory to God? So you can apply these questions then to the actual acts that you're doing. Now, Mark Driscoll wrote a book get the name of it now it's gone from my mind marriage sorry is it real marriage real marriage yeah and he speaks of certain things that he and his wife were to say are very permissible but his categorization for uh, calling them permissible skips I would say half uh, of these questions and, and therefore does not have a fully refined and wise view of what is God honouring in the actual sexual union just as we could easily say watching pornography is not permissible for married or unmarried people we could say that solo sex, we know what we're talking about here don't we we all know what we're talking, I'm talking about, I don't have to say that Okay, solo sex, married or not is not right it is not right, married or not why? It doesn't fit within the combined four key purposes for sex. Consummation, procreation, love, there's no relationship in solo sex, and pleasure. Pleasure is not within those other three contexts. It is most probably always fueled by lust, and it is enslaving. 
it often results in guilt, not peace. See, now I'm going into the questions, the, the seven or eight questions here. So as we apply the four purposes and the seven questions, we can come to then good and wise decision-making in this area. You see what I'm saying? So that gives us some good um, biblical paradigms and, and thinking and some good wise questions based on uh, biblical paradigms that we can ask of sex and the sexual act itself. <clears throat> okay, so that's then sex and, and marriage. How about then uh, sex and singleness? Sex and singleness. Marriage is the creation mandate. Singleness is a curse in the Old Testament. And whilst the New Testament, this is the beauty of the New Testament, redeems singleness and promotes the goodness of singleness, the creation mandate still stands. Of course, singleness in the Old Testament considered a, a curse in the Old Testament because, of, of course, the idea was uh, spreading image, image bearers uh, by procreation and propagation through that. Now, in the New Testament, it's is spreading these image bearers in the sense of Christian through regeneration, not procreation. And so singleness is then redeemed. The bigger family is the family of the church. And that's a beautiful and good thing. Marriage is the norm, however, still. And normal discipleship of children includes preparation to assume the duties of marriage. Headship for boys and helpership for girls. Okay? We must prepare our children for what will be the norm. And then you say, well, what if you, they don't get married? Then what have they lost? But so many pe people aren't preparing their children that they won't aim for it, number one, because it's not on the radar, and they're not prepared for it, number two. If we preach the balance of Scripture on the topics of marriage and singleness, and if people are prayerful and seeking to be filled with the Spirit and have their desires then biblically informed, more will marry, and some will not marry. And the balance will be more biblical because that is the balance of Scripture that informs our desires, you see. That more will marry, but some won't marry. However, I think it's really important to remember that even though marriage is the norm, it's like it, do, it doesn't mean that singleness is necessarily bad. You know, it might be the norm that most people have dark hair, but it doesn't mean to say that having red hair is bad. Or no hair. Nothing wrong with having no hair. <laughs> okay? It's, even though marriage is the norm, it's not a universal. We live in a fallen world. We're also given afflictions and trials to bear. So there's always going to be people around us, in our congregations, our families, who desperately want to be married, but who aren't able to for various reasons. I think the older people get, maybe the more self-conscious they might be about this. So when I talk about these things, I want to keep these people in mind as well. We don't want to talk about the norm of marriage in a way that me, makes them feel indicted for not being married when they desire it, but the Lord just hasn't provided it yet. They're in a situation that is no fault of their own. Um, and so I don't want to trample, and we don't want to trample people underfoot in the way that we're just promoting marriage, of course. I want to lift up people. That's why we don't mainly teach on marriage or singleness we mainly teach the gospel and the church that's the bigger thing and that's the bigger marriage of course 
But when we do teach on marriage, more than singleness per se, singles shouldn't be uh, get uppity about it and take a victim posture. Because the balance of the scripture is to teach more on marriage than singleness. It's, in fact, good instruction for everyone to pray for marriages, single or not. And for many singles, to pursue marriage. All that said, Paul says that singleness is a gift in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7. So, God has gifted Paul with the ability to remain celibate and thus in this married state it allows for an undivided single-minded devotion to the lord in the way a married person doesn't have it with their concerns for spouses etc which he speaks of later in first corinthians 7 verse 32 but if you're not gifted for celibacy you ought to be married you need to be gifted for it one way might be to discern knowing if you are gifted for celibacy is do you have control of your passions? Do you have control of your passions? Um, or if your desire for marriage is, is unabating, there's this great desire that hasn't gone away and we know people even in our own church that have been married later on, in their late 30s even, 40, early 40s, and, and desired marriage for many, many years until the Lord has brought them that right person. But if this is a, 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 if your passions are, are burning and, and then you have this desire uh, for marriage that's unabating, you would probably know that you've not been gifted for celibacy. Now note this in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 13. Paul says that the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. He also says in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 6, flee sexual immorality. And so in verse 20 First uh, Corinthians 6, on the basis of the gospel, glorify God with your body. So, our bodies have been created by God and for God. That's uh, a totally opposite starting place for the world, which is driven by what pleasure your body can get. Eating, drinking, watching, touching, you get pleasure. Uh, there is a way then that we can immorally use our bodies sexually... We all know here that we have all misused our bodies sexually in some way, and by the grace of God, we have forgiveness in the gospel. Such were some of us. Christ lived in a body, died for our sins, rose in a body. We are new creations. Now we should use our bodies for his glory, not our gratification. Just as Christ has his resurrected body, our bodies will be resurrected at the judgment. And now our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. This is the way we need to see our bodies as Christians. So if your Lord created your body and it is for him, then he is for you and he's for your body. So when you glorify God with your body, you will actually then experience maximum satisfaction in your body. So knowing what the bodily use for sexual union is helps you then to think, Right, if I, the body's from God and for God, and he's for the body, when I glorify God with my body, unmarried or married, I will actually experience maximum satisfaction in my body. Some people may argue, it's all right for you, you're married, you can experience sexual pleasure. Uh, I might never be married. Or someone who is celibate, uh, a Christian, and then is experiencing some same-sex attraction. 
uh, impulses, might say, well, the option of intimacy and marriage might never be open uh, for him or her. These are very painful realities in a fallen world, and God will give grace in the struggle. And the t- but the temptation is to think, God is holding out on me. I'm missing out here. And that's not the case. He's not holding out. He gave his own son for you. He gave his own son for your body. The body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. He's for your fallen body with its fallen impulses in whatever state you are, married or single. He's guarding your body and he has redeemed you so that you now have the ability, you have the ability indwelt by the Holy Spirit as a temple of the Holy Spirit. You have the ability then to use your body for what God designed, his glory. So the greatest grace then we see is that sexual union is prescribed within the boundaries of marriage and only there will it be safe or good for you and can you glorify God by having sex within that union. Outside of that union, you glorify God in celibacy. So marriage may be the norm, singleness may be a good thing, which is the better state? Marriage or singleness? Well, it depends. If God hasn't allowed for marriage to be a possibility for a person, then I would say singleness is God's good and wise plan, at least for now. If God, and and you should use that state of singleness full on for the glory of God. As Paul did. If God has allowed for the opportunity of marriage, then marriage is God's good and wise plan. But, But these are matters of providence, and they're often beyond our control. For most, it will be marriage, so we must encourage that without making everyone think they must be married or something is wrong with them if they're not married. Singleness is a commendable estate, even if it's not for most people. On the other hand, if marriage would be a possibility for a young man, uh, if he would simply take responsibility for his life, but he's failing to do that, it's entirely a different situation. He needs to kick up the backside. Or maybe there are some women who are so idealistic, instead of looking for growth in godliness in a man, they're looking for perfection. There are perhaps many young men and women like that then who need to be admonished in a culture that is prolonging ungodly singleness. Which leads then to to dating. Leads to dating. So we can understand our theological paradigms One, what sex is for in terms of our maleness and femaleness being made for the glory of God. Second paradigm, that both maleness and femaleness is is designed to point to the glory of God in the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son. And both male and female do that in different ways. Uh, Third paradigm is that the Old Testament and New Testament root their sexual ethic, both of them, Old Testament and New Testament, back to Genesis 1 and 2, and God's pre-fall creation design. The next paradigm is we see is that there are four subordinate key purposes for sexual union, plus seven key wisdom questions to help us decide how we act ethically in the sexual union. And then we've looked briefly at a fourth paradigm of the unmarried state of of being gifted to be single and celebrate. How to discern whether this is you, 
how to live even as an unmarried person, even if you're waiting for marriage that you desire. But what about getting to marriage? So we can have all of these things in place, these paradigms and these checks and balances and even wisdom questions. questions. But how do we get from this, this, a state of singleness to uh, marriage? Um, how should we think about relationships, about dating or, or courtship? Well, a note here that the Bible doesn't speak about dating or, or courtship per se, but that doesn't necessarily mean to say it's sinful. There are many things that aren't in the Bible, like aeroplanes, right? They're not sinful by definition. Um, so some things to help us think about dating. Firstly, we need to get our relationship categories correct. When people are dating, you often see, don't you, on Facebook, is it the status in a relationship? In a relationship. What does that mean? What does that mean, in a relationship? kind of relationship we're talking about? Gerald Highstand and uh, Jay Thomas, in their book, Sex, Dating and Relationships, A Fresh Approach, they list three categories of relationship that are found in the Bible, three categories. There is neighbor, the category of relationship is neighbor, in which there is absolutely no provision for sexual activity. The second is family, so there is no sexual activity permissible in family relationships in terms of there's no incest. Okay? And the third is marriage, where sexual activity is actually permitted and commanded and commended. So there's no category of relationship for people acting like they are married and not being married. The categories of relationship that, that Christian singles can see dating under, I would say, is maybe a combination of neighbour and family, but not in the sense of nuclear family, but in the sense of church family. Because Paul says in 1 Timothy 5 verse 1, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So an unmarried Christian man should treat an unmarried Christian woman as a sister in all purity, and she, vice versa, him as a brother in all purity. So there is that sort of family aspect, but in terms of church family. And there is the neighbour aspect, of course, which is, again, neither one containing any sexual activity. Getting the category or categories combined right means that we're to think of the, uh, of, of the relationship um, or the activity of dating within that. This, what does this do then? This then guards the heart and, and sexual purity. It then becomes not how far can we go in dating without sinning, but how best can we glorify God as we date within these categories of relationship. Knowing the category gives us clear lines then. And now we view dating as an activity within a category of relationship. So dating isn't a relationship. It's an activity within an cat- overall arching, uh, arch- arching category of relationship. The neighbour church family one. The neighbour church family one. Nevertheless, it does not mean that the dating activity is aimless or without any shape. 
Now you hear the modern saying, don't you? Oh, you were made for each other. Yeah, you know that? Oh, you're made for each other. You, you hear people say that. Really? Really? Are you made for each other? Is that, is that right? Maybe no, maybe yes. No, in the sense that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Okay? He is directing us back to Genesis 1 and 2, creation order. God the Father making the woman from the man as a helper fit for the man and bringing her to the man as his wife in marriage. So the direction is her from him and for him. Thus we should say to a man, she was made for you and to a woman, you were made for him. You see the difference? Even in the way that we're speaking. She was made for you. God made her for you. She made the woman from the man for the man. You were made for him. He made you from him and for him. It shapes even our thinking then on dating with regards to marriage. We need sharp thinking. Because it's so egalitarian nowadays. You were made for each other. No, no. Look at what the Bible says. We say we're pregnant. We're not pregnant. I've never been pregnant. <laughs> Two children, wife and I had, she gave birth to both of them. It's true, isn't it? You know that saying, it's my bugbear. People that, uh, I've been here a few years and they know it's my bugbear, is we're pregnant. <sighs> Hate it. But it's an egalitarian creep into our language, so everything becomes same. Everything's equal. There's no distinction. You were made for each other in that. Um, she is with child my wife is with child the old fashioned way maybe it <laughs> would be better to say but, but the way that we think then it shapes our thinking on dating and marriage because dating must be aimed at marriage uh, Jesus in Matthew 19 you know when he's talking to the Pharisees and they've asked him about the question of divorce and what does Jesus do? where does he go? have you not read? That he who made them from the beginning, made them male and female. He quotes Genesis 1.27. And then after the creation of male and female, he says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. He's referring back to Genesis 2.24. Back to Genesis again. And the woman, he, he, in this context, of course, Genesis 2.24, we've just heard the woman is bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh from him for him. So listen to this. That a man and a woman, at the very deepest way, are related in that sense. Think of that. Man and woman related in the very deepest way, back to creation. She from him, for him. Bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. So in a sense, a man and woman are made for each other. There is a natural and a good movement then when a man moves towards a woman with the purpose of marriage. And that, that one flesh marriage between a man and a woman is actually a reenactment of the very way that humanity was very first structured by God in creation. Amazing. And a beautiful thing that she's taken from him for him. So then when he goes and gets her in the, in the many marriages that happen, is a reenactment of what is happening as he comes back to her and they come together again as they were relating that very deepest sense in the creation of the woman from the man. 
This from him for him also means this. A son leaves and a daughter is given. A man will leave his father and mother and find a wife. Proverbs, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. doesn't say the other way around. She is then given to the man by her father. This maintains the creation picture. The first father of the bride, God, making her from him, for him, and bringing him to him. Bringing her to him. The ordinance is then announced that then a man will leave the home of his birth and he will cleave to a woman starting a home of his choice. He leaves the home of his birth and he finds a wife and cleaves to her and starts now a home of his choice. Jesus talks of this idea of daughters being given when he says um, in in, uh, Matthew that uh, talking about in heaven there will be no marriage he says they will neither they will neither marry nor be given in marriage uh, psalm 78 verse 30, uh, 63 the fire consumed their young men and their maidens were not given in marriage numbers 30 it's a chunk of a passage not a lot of no time to go into deep ex, uh, exegesis of it but he speaks of vows, yeah, these promises that were made and all these vows and how you're supposed to keep them. And, um, and speaks of a young woman not having to fulfill her vows, these certain promises she may have made, if her father overrides that. And the same with a married woman, if her husband would override it. So, you know, she's, she's committed. I said, I'll go and, you know, babysit for every week for two years for someone. If the, hus- if the father, if she's at home... He overrides that, says you don't have to. She doesn't have to keep that vow. Same with the husband uh, when she's married. What this is showing here, uh, in part, is a transfer of authority from under her father's authority to her husband's authority. Remember, these young women would have got married quite young, would have been in their father's house, dependent upon their father then for their spiritual and physical protection and provision. And then she would have moved to her husband's house from under her father's care and authority to her husband's care and authority. Um, we, we would be okay with that, but then we would, might be thinking, well, what about some of our, some older women, you know, and especially in our day and age where women have, have moved out of the house and we have many in our church and they're, yeah, they've got their own houses and they're earning their, their own money and supporting themselves. Um, would it be the same? Well, it's interesting um, that in that passage in Numbers 30, it is not the case for widows. Um, we could say older, independent women. Um, they were heads of their own households. Even we think of Lydia in the New Testament. And so for an older woman who has left home, is working, uh, owning her own house, this wouldn't apply necessarily in the same way. She is not under, in her father's house, under her father's authority. Though the call and command to honour her father and mother remains and so seeking her father and mother's advice and blessing if she was uh, dating someone with a view to marry would be a very wise thing to do even though it's a a different situation from uh, a young woman who's at home and under her father's authority within the home all this to say that any dating activity uh, should have Parental involvement. Parental involvement should be a key. And sons are different from daughters. A son must be 
prepared and be pre- being prepared to leave and find a wife. And if mum's still cutting up his steak and, you know, wiping his mouth before he does that, he ain't going to make a good husband and be a leader in his house. And that then young man, when he, he comes to uh, date a girl, potentially will ask the father for permission to get to know his daughter uh, more. And that would, dating would then be under the oversight uh, of the girl's father, if she's under the authority of the father in the home, a daughter subject to her father and her, her mum and dad and, 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 ha- and them having good input in how the dating happens. Okay? And that will look different in different households. So there's room for, for you applying that as, as parents uh, when this happens with you. The modern mindset doesn't think like this on dating because one of the reasons is we've been convinced that parental authority doesn't matter um, and that parents are actually against their children's best interest and that the old have no wisdom and are old-fashioned. Um, I'm sure parental authority can be abused and overbearing. I'm sure some parents can be against their children's best interests. I'm sure that some parents aren't very wise and are a little bit stuck in the past. I'm sure that all those things can be said to true to some degree. But the point is that just because there are these exceptions, it doesn't mean to say that these are not good things and good wisdom things put in place by the Lord. We talk about honouring father and mother and seeking their blessing in marriage. Would be, it'd be a very wise thing to do. A wise thing to do. A mother and father who knows you, a, 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 you know, a, for a young girl maybe, a, you know, a, a father who knows how men's minds work and what to look for in a, in, in a, in a, a man and, and, and marriage and having that care for the daughter. Uh, having some wisdom of walk through life before. And then, of course, you're joining two families together. So it'd be a good and wise thing that, you know, parents were on board. Um, and so we need patience and prayer uh, and skill and wisdom if that's the case for a man or for a, or for a woman if you're seeking uh, a marriage relationship through dating. But having the parental input is important in the dating process. God has put this in place based in creation. Remember the order in creation, son leaving, father, girl being given for our protection and our good. So with a clear, clear idea of the categories that, that dating then becomes an activity underneath and this parental input and fatherly authority in mind, you have then safeguards to begin dating. Um, if you are ready for marriage and understand the purposes and costs of marriage and glory of marriage, then the dating becomes an opportunity to gain clari- clarity about marriage. I wrote uh, both of my children a letter um, on uh, dating. So I was kind of scrambling as I went along when this kind of hit me the, the first time. And so I'm, get, I'm writing my, own, my stuff as I go along. I wished I'd had clearer years of thinking on the issue. But I actually wrote them a letter with, you know, outlining what the purposes are, how to conduct it, so on and so forth. Um, and, and it was the same for both, but a couple of tweaks according to their uh, sex. Um, 
in each one. But understanding that is about getting clarity for, for marriage. This is one of the, the key things. It's not first about cultivating romance. You don't build marriage on romance or chemistry. And that's not to say it doesn't matter. Okay? Not to say that a chemistry or a romance in marriage doesn't matter. But you do build a marriage on covenant promise that is made from clear convictions about what marriage is, uh, what it's for, and what your roles are within the marriage. I'll say that again. You build a marriage on covenant promise that is made from clear convictions about what marriage is, what marriage is for, and what are the roles are within the marriage for you. Knowing your role as head and helper. Key. Because when his funny personality or her good looks go out the window, it is covenant commitment and conviction uh, about vocational roles then that will keep you together. Uh, and then this moves me from the, from the idea of dating uh, within marriage. People talk about dating, date night, okay? You know, you need a date night to stoke the flames. Not what they say. Maybe they don't say that, but that's the idea, right? To stoke the flames. Well, dating wasn't to stoke the flames in the first place. It wasn't to stoke the flames in the per- first place, ultimately. So when you have that date night in marriage, make sure you use it to talk about your marriage covenant, to talk about your roles within that, to see where you can press on uh, in these roles. Give thanks for all that God has done in your spouse so far. That will stoke the flames of romance in your marriage. As you fulfill God's purposes in your vocational roles, in the big purpose and purposes of marriage, that will fuel flames of romance in the marriage. But you tell me, ladies, what is more uh, attractive to you and stoke your flames of romance in your marriage as when your husband is really growing as a Christ-like head? Yeah? Or for a man, when your wife is so respectful to you in the way she speaks and honours you, that then stokes the flames of romance. Um, just before we close, just three problems for people who are dating, and then a quick exhortation going forward, and then I'll take questions. Uh, problem of lust. Problem of lust. You know, don't awaken love before it's time. So you're dating. This isn't a relationship. It is a dating process. It's under this neighbour and and family uh, of God relationship umbrella. But the activity is dating. So you're not in any kind of uh, factual relationship here in terms of any sexual activity. Watch out for the problem of lust. Don't awaken love before it's time, Song of Solomon tells us. And so the proverb says, guard your heart with all diligence, for from it blow the streams of life. So you, Jesus says that the heart is the place where sexual lust occurs first. I've always quoted that from the Sermon on the Mount. So even with good biblical thinking and paradigms and safeguards in place, as discussed, you still need to show self-control. So you need to be prayerful as you date. Prayerful as you date. Okay? Um, and so, it, and just an added thing there... 
we, we want to be prayerful, we want to be showing self-control, we want to be on guard, but we don't want to be really stiff so that we're literally terrified of actually enjoying ourselves, you know? Um, you, you know, so I, uh, talk about distancing, <laughs> I've got to be, oh, I'm not six foot from her, you know? That, that kind of thing. Rather than working on the principles of the matter and having wisdom in the way that you apply that in your dating relationship and being prayerful and the Lord will give you help in these things so the first thing is this problem of lust it is a, it is a problem but the Lord has given you the ability uh, to overcome that with biblical instruction and warnings and um, the prayerful uh, the power of prayer uh, the second is this problem of procrastination um, I would say particularly for men putting off putting off you know, the commitment to marriage and all that, and especially when they hear what it entails for them to be a husband and so on, is the problem of procrastination linked to laziness. Linked to laziness and selfishness. And this is where we get to an unbiblical uh, singleness that can uh, carry on through the church. At some point, you need to take a risk, a godly risk. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways, prayerfully, and he will direct your paths. You know, so, so you can put these things in place, have this biblical thinking, these, these, these biblical protections, this biblical wisdom, and then act. And then act. And the Lord will direct your paths. Not every dating uh, activity is going to end up necessarily in marriage. We can't guarantee that. But we can trust the Lord that he will work through this as we've been faithful to him along the way. And the last, the third problem is the problem of perfectionism. I probably alluded to that a little bit with, you know, talking about some of girls in particular that want that perfect kind of Prince Charming guy that's a Christian Prince Charming. Um, and they're just not there. They're just not there. But are the seeds there? Are the seeds of the biblical man there? Um, do you know what it means to be a biblical woman but also do you know what it is to be a biblical man so that you can recognise that man when he comes for you and in that even again there is that trusting in the Lord and taking a godly risk so going forward then um, I would commend you pursue Christ first and as Augustine says basically love God and do as you please because you see, if you love God with all your heart and mind and soul, yeah, you're going to be loving his word and all of these kind of things that are involved here and the wisdom and so on and so on. And then do as you please. Your desires are going to be informed by the word of God. So what you please will actually, will actually be very godly and wise behavior. So that's your first thing is to pursue Christ. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind and soul and strength. And then do as you please. Second thing is clarify that relationship uh, status, you know, the categories of thinking and what dating is as an activity rather than just this relationship. Clarify that, that will give you good uh, uh, lines. Um, the third thing is have biblical paradigms like we've discussed, have biblical laws, that is, the laws that are clear in the scripture and clear principles if it's not clear, and then have biblical wisdom to apply it. So we need biblical paradigms and clear categories of thought. We, we need biblical laws 
what is clearly allowed and prohibited in the scriptures and where not, clear principles. And then biblical wisdom is then how do we get, you know, the biblical wisdom is what is the, the best end, okay, uh, to get to. And then a prudence is how do we get there. And so biblical wisdom, you could say, and prudence. And then finally, what are your capacities? What's your situation and, and what do you desire in the end? You know, what are your capacities? Uh, are you a man that could say, I, I, could, I can love and lead that particular woman. And for another Christian man, maybe he thinks, oh, I don't think I could do that. But she might be a godly woman, but just not the one he thinks he could lead. Or, you know, for a, for a, a woman, I could really respect that man there. Um, it's not that every single Christian woman is going to be the one for every single Christian man and, and vice versa. What's your particular capacities? What's your particular stage of growth and maturity? Even recognising that there will be no perfect marriage and you will grow as you go. Um, what is your situation? Is marriage a possibility for you even at the moment or not? What is your particular situation? Have you even got the uh, resources uh, to be married uh, at this moment in time? And then finally, what is uh, your desire? And I think that comes back to the, to the first one, is loving the Lord your God, pressing into the Word of God, having that wisdom from the Word of God, and letting it all inform your desires as to uh, what you desire in life.